Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to, or click on for that matter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you didn't have, or you don't have a Bible, 1 Corinthians 9 can be found in page 811 in the church Bibles. We're going to be reading in just a moment from verse 19 to verse 23. And while you're turning there, if we haven't as of yet met, and you would find that helpful, well, when we're through, I'd be honored to do that. So just keep that in mind. Also, if you have a question about what we've said or sung or read, then I would be happy also to try to answer those questions for you. So we're going to read from the Bible, we're going to ask God for his help and pray, and then we're going to be on trying to learn from the text there. Verse 19, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means... I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the privilege of public worship. And now with our Bibles before you, may the spirit of God be our teacher, that we would hear from you, God, this morning as your word is taught. And in this, would you please make us very pliable this morning before you? Take away our fight, our flight, our fear, if we have it in these things. And may the Holy Spirit radically stir the believers before you now with newfound powers and personal evangelism. May your zeal in these things, Father, be our zeal in order to help others know your Son for your glory and the salvation as for many as many people as possible. And so we would ask all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you were with us last time, you will remember that we learned from the pages of God's Word that Paul, who was following the example of Jesus Christ, was prepared to surrender three of man's most jealously guarded treasures, which were financial gain, personal independence, and any physical indulgence, all for the sake of the gospel, all to see people one to Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul, verse 19, was a completely free man. But he knew that it would not please his risen Lord to allow his freedom to provide him with excuses to ignore his God-given responsibility. And if you think about this, this is right in line with what Jesus taught. We alluded to it during Kids in the Kingdom, Mark chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 16, 25. Whoever has a desire to keep his life safe will have it taken away from him. And of course, Jesus is the one that will do that. But whoever gives up his life because of me, says Jesus, will be given it back and we could add, given back in spades. In other words, the the great Christian martyr, Jim Elliott, was absolutely right when he said, and actually he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you see, that is what keeps Paul's hand to the plow. He knew that to say he had a right to this or that and not advance the gospel personally is not the way to live the Christian life 
Because that way of life, according to Jesus, not only will injure others because of our silence, but more than that, it will injure the person themselves. So in essence, Paul knew that the gospel had been entrusted to him, just as it's been entrusted to all of us who here name Jesus as Lord. Yet at the same time, the gospel was not under his control. Consequently, in submission to the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ, every personal encounter Paul had, every personal habit, every personal ambition was personally and overtly under the rule and reign of Christ in his life. And if you know Christ, then one could say, what a fantastic way to live. Subsequently, Christ, and only Christ, is Lord of all. Christ owns, if you would, he owns every conversation, in every place, and in every room. No one can say that but Jesus. So, loved ones, if we don't understand this as a, as a Christian or even as a congregation, then those in the church of Jesus Christ are doomed to become consumers and not ambassadors. Okay, so what do consumers do? Well, they consume, they complain, and then they consume some more. But what do ambassadors do? They, they represent, they serve, and they speak of their homeland often. How one might get there, what's in store for them when they arrive, and so on. And if we are just consumers, then we should know that Jesus disapproved of those who would follow him simply for physical or temporal benefits. You see, people may follow Jesus Christ for many reasons. Protection, advantage, prestige, comfort, a finance, or superstitious appeasement. But those, in essence, are all self-centered motives. Genuine believers follow Christ because they know that he has forgiven them of their sin. They know that they've been saved by his grace. They know they are delivered from God's wrath. They know that Jesus is the master of the universe and beyond. And they know his way is the way, and they are humbled by such love when they consider his cross. Therefore, what I hope that we'll learn this morning was that Paul was not a one-sided apostle confining himself to only a certain group of people in his personal evangelism. So only people that he kind of liked or had, he thought, things in common with. Thus, if he did that, he would avoid whole segments of the population. Now, you see what Paul owed to the gospel moved him past, okay, moved Paul past only certain segments of the culture. And if he has to lose his freedom to further the gospel, then he'll lose his freedom. He'd claim no right then. He'd make no demands, and he would insist on no privileges for the sake of the gospel. And the gospel is the only thing that can do that. Now, you contrast that mindset with the average Christian in Corinth, because what they were doing, they were demanding their rights, and they weren't advancing the gospel they needed to learn theology all over again. They were so pre preoccupied with their personal rights and their personal freedoms and their personal pleasures, apparently it came at the cost of personal evangelism. And we know this, at least most of us know this, Jesus in the, poor, uh, the parable of the sower, right? Life's riches, life's pleasures, uh, life's um, riches, pleasures, ha, the desire for other things. Choke the word. I mean, think about that. The Word of God can be choked by all those things, and thus it makes for unfruitful Christians. And so, while we're talking about this, Paul's so honest, so we can't be in any, any doubt at all. When he follows Jesus, he knows that that line of living might cost him dearly. But listen carefully. 
It doesn't cost Paul his joy. It doesn't cost Paul his joy. And this much is clear. He was prepared to receive a reward when he was done on this earth. So yes, his principle of accommodation for the sake of the gospel, just like Jesus, yes, it would cost him dearly. But, and you see, this is what's so fantastic. It only cost him on this side of heaven where things are fleeting. It's just moments. But in eternity, when he reaps his reward, if you would, when God crowns his grace on Paul, then that glory never ends. And you see, Paul knows that. Paul's, Paul's thinking like a Christian. So if you're here and you're a non-believer, welcome, first of all. And you're going to have to consider these things. But if you're here and you're a believer, then this is what I want you to consider as we work through these questions. So when I was gone on sabbatical, the first place we worshipped, the first song I sang with another congregation was this song. In fact, I remember it because I got my phone out and I started taking pictures of the hymn because it was a great hymn. And I remember the lady behind me, she was like, what is he doing with the phone? I can't believe he's doing that, right? I was like, oh, I'm sorry. But it was so good. Listen to the hymn. Rise up, O saints of God, from vain ambition turn. Christ rose triumphant that your hearts with nobler zeal might burn. Speak out, O saint of God. Despair overwhelms earth's frame. As heirs of God's perfect grace, the word of hope proclaim. I mean, that'll preach. That'll sing. So with all that in mind, we're going to work under the heading adapt or lose. And we're going to try to answer three questions. And if you received a worship folder, in the back of that folder is those questions. First question then, pretty plain, Paul, what are you doing? And as you look at the Bible, when I give you the answer, I want you to see if I'm right or not. Question, Paul, what are you doing? Answer, I am seeking to win as many people as possible to Christ. So clearly Paul is in the business of winning. But not just any kind of winning, soul winning. And so the word that Paul chooses for the word win is a very graphic word. And it means what it seems to mean. It means to know a victory. Okay, to know a victory. And that word, believe it or not, is used often in the Bible. Let me give you three examples. Number one, Jesus, Matthew 18. Jesus has given instruction on discipline in the church. And Jesus said, if someone is involved in a sin and their brother goes to them and they confront them, then that person then listens to them. Then Jesus said, you have won the individual over. One, same word. Philippians 3.8, this is Paul. Paul's giving the reason by why he does what he does. My great desire is that, is that I may win. The NIV says gain, but it's win Christ, being found in him. Same word. Last word, Peter. 1 Peter 3.8. He's writing to believing wives with unbelieving husbands. And he tells them, let your life tell more than your speech so that your husband might be won, same word, won over by your good behavior. So this word then means what we think it means. It means to know victory. And you can see there in your Bibles, Paul repeats it over and over again. Verse 19, to win as many as possible. Verse 20, to win the Jews. Verse 20b, to win those under the law. Verse 21, to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. So what does Paul want to do? All he does is win, 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 right? That's all he wants to do. So we ask the question again, hey, Paul, what are you doing? His answer would be really, really plain. I want to win souls. In fact, if you look at the final phrase in verse 22b, which reads, so that by all possible means I might save some. 
because of the nature of that phrase that Paul uses at the end, it's very clear that what's at stake for Paul is not like ego or boasting rights. Did you see how many people I won for Jesus? Woo, look at me. That's not it. What Paul is saying is, is, oh my, people's eternal destiny is at stake here, and this matters to me. And because this matters to me, I want to win. So on occasion in the world of sports, you'll hear the announcers say, well, the team's doing horrible. And he'll say, well, or she'll say, do you think this team knows how to win? Or do you think they even want to win? And if they really wanted to win, do you think that's reasonable to assume that there'd be activities which will give indication of their purpose, right? And you see, that rings true to Paul, and it should ring true to all of us that are believers. Where's the blood? Where's the sweat? Where's the loss? Where are they? We want to win, don't we? That's what Paul would say. So when Paul says he wants to win, you can see very clearly that he has an end game. So, so yes, we want to see people in public worship. Oh, God, yes. We want to see people in Bible studies. Oh, God, yes. Events, meetings, and the such. But what we want to know, we want to know that they have been won by Christ. You see, won by Christ. Therefore, clearly, Paul has an all-consuming passion to see people won to Jesus Christ with a clarity, with a clarity about their conversion. And so if someone said to Paul, well, gosh, Paul, I appreciate your zeal, but you know, you probably need to cut it down a few notches. I mean, this, this could be a bit over the top. People generally don't like this. Then all we need to do is turn to our Bibles and consider Jesus, our example in everything, right? Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, for, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I mean, it can't get any plainer than that, right? You follow me and I will make you fishers of human beings. And what is the Christian but a follower of Christ? And what do followers of Christ do? Well, in part, they fish for people. So, loved ones, no matter what else is additional in the Christian faith, this much is essential. Jesus says to us, I'm not tracking this evangelism road alone. I am taking you with me. We are in this together. We're going to fish for people together. So this little group is not planning to stay a little group. And so that the church may never say, well, you know what, let's go have a Coke and a smile. We're fine. We're big enough. Let's settle down because after, after all, the world is a horrible place and we don't want horrible people getting to this place. We need to be safe. We can't let them in. Jesus would never say that. Paul would never say that. The Christian is to live life with our wide, eyes wide open, seeking to fish in the mainstream of life, in the ins and outs of our day, in the places, Acts 17, where God himself has put us. That's how important it is. So clearly then, one of the key ingredients of a life that's been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is not someone who attends services. That's great. It's not someone who reads their Bible or goes to Bible studies. That's great. It's not someone who reads the book of Revelation over and over again so they can connect the dots to the end. That's okay. It is a life that cannot keep the good news of Jesus Christ to itself. Right? They can't keep Jesus to themselves. So make no mistake, our salvation would never depend on our obedience. Never. However, our obedience, in varying degrees, is a response to our salvation. Uh, grace is the root Obedience is the fruit. Grace is the ground of our salvation. Obedience is the evidence. And no more clearly than in personal evangelism. 
If you follow me, says Jesus, I'll make you fishers of men. Now think with me just for a minute. Can you imagine we, we go to the week, or lake, excuse me, uh, over and over again. And let's say we go to the lake and we intend to fish, but we never actually cast our line in the water. So we go through this routine. I know. We go home and we hear from our spouse. And they say, did you catch anything? And we say, no, we did not catch anything. So this goes on for years and years and years. Finally, our spouse says, listen, you know, I love you, but you don't seem to be very good at this fishing thing. Have you thought about painting? You know, it'd be a little bit cheaper and you might have some success there. And then they said, well, can I ask you a simple question? And I don't want you to be mad at me, but are you actually casting your line in the water? I mean, you're doing that, aren't you? And so we would answer, well, of course not. If we put our line in the water, we're going to scare the fish. I'm just waiting for the fish to jump in the boat. I'm trying to influence fish to get in the boat. Presumably, that, where, that might be where some of us are this morning. We never really actually cast our line in the water of other people's lives. We said religious things, you know, I'll pray for you and things like that. That's wonderful. But we've never, ever, ever have said gospel things. Now, can you imagine if we took seriously the words of Jesus? Can you imagine how that would radically transform a Sunday morning at West Coasset Chapel? Can you imagine if we took the words of Jesus seriously, how that would radically transform all our context if we bowed to the authority of Jesus, followed him, accepted his help, and fished for men and women? Paul, what are you doing? I want to win souls. So as you're thinking about that and maybe a name pops in your head, I'd write that name down and put that person to prayer and pray for God for situations to arise where you get to them and you speak to them about the transforming power of Jesus Christ, about the gospel, to win them, to him. Because Christians want to win. We want to win. Second question. Okay, Paul, how are you doing this? Well, again, the strategy is clear. The key phrase is another repetitive phrase that Paul uses. It's, I became like. You see it there over and over again. And it's another graphic word. And what the word or the phrase, I became like, which is actually one Greek word, is I moved from me to them. I moved from me into them. In essence, what Paul is saying, I get in their world. I get in their world. So, for example, verse 20 To the Jew, I became like. I got into the world of the Jew. Verse 20b, to those under the law, I got into the world of those under the law. How did they think? How did they operate? Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. I moved from me to them so as to win the weak. So it becomes very clear. Paul, we know that your purpose is to win as many people as possible. Okay? We got that. So Paul, how are you going to do this? Here's his answer. And every decision I make, I consider first the degree to which it helps me win the lost. So in other words, I was thinking Christian about everything. I was prepared then to adjust my habits. I was prepared to change my preferences, modify my lifestyle to be all things to all men so that I may win them. And I'm doing it all for the sake of the gospel. So apply that principle to us. We ask ourselves, do you really want to go over there? You answer the first part of that. Will it help me win as many people as possible? Should I, should I change this about me? Will it help me win as many people as possible? Should I plan for this? Should I do this? Will it help me win as many people as possible? So plainly, this is not a quality of life issue for Paul. 
This is the measure of his success in soul winning issue. And loved ones, no mere human thinks this way, right? This is not human, but this comes by way of conversion. This is Christian. This is how Christians think. So you see, to order his life to this end, again to your Bibles, verse 20, to the Jews, verse 20b, those under the law, moral law, verse 21, to the Gentile, verse 22, to the weak, and finally, the second part of verse 22, to everyone, all people, he moved from him to them. He understood and began to know in an increasing level the difference there are in people. He would take no pride in his ability to never change anything about himself or his bents for others. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. So let's just walk through this just a little bit slower. So what does Paul do first? Well, you can see this in your notes. Second point, Paul goes where they are. He crosses over into their lives. He investigates, right? How do I step into the world of the Jew? Well, of course, he was familiar with that world. But what about the world of the Gentile? What about the world of the rich? What about the world of the angry? What about the world of the atheist? What about the world of the sophisticated? What about the world of just the common person? How do I become more, here's the phrase, a word, cosmopolitan? That's the idea. How do I become more cosmopolitan and so I avoid any kind of subculture Christianity, rabbit hole Christianity, get out of that. I'm going to avoid that to win as many as possible. So he goes where there are. He's got his Bible in one hand and his newspaper in the other. He's reading, studying, thinking about people. Then, secondly, he adds or subtracts non-essentials, his liberties, to what they need. So, for example, Paul finds it fine to take a Jewish Nazarite vow which involved the shaving of his head, Acts 21.3, to underpin Paul's commitment to the moral law in order that Jewish Christians wouldn't be confused and say, you know what, Paul's tossing out the commandments. I can't believe it when he proclaims his gospel. He doesn't do that. He becomes as one under the law to win them. And from the Jewish point of view, he has a half-Jew, half-Gentile uh, ministry team member named Timothy. He has Timothy circumcised before he goes out into the mission field to win as many people as possible. But, and listen carefully, this is why you have to know your Bible. Paul allows Timothy to be circumcised, but he doesn't allow Titus to be circumcised. Why is that? Well, first of all, the context that Titus was in was far different from Timothy. Timothy was about ready to go on that missionary endeavor. He wanted to be all things to all people. The gospel wasn't at stake here. What was at stake in Titus' circumstance is there were people coming into the fellowship saying, you know what, if you want to be a Christian, then you're going to have to be circumcised. And if you're not circumcised, then you're not a Christian. And Paul would say, I will have none of that. This is Galatians 2 and 3 and following. So they came in, they were playing mind games, trying to fiddle with the gospel. And Paul and Titus says, no way, no way. I will not be circumcised in this context because it's not necessary to be a Christian. And you guys need to know that. So that's Paul. He starts where people are. He goes over to them. He adds or subtracts non-essentials to fit their need. And thirdly, he continues to cling the gospel truth. That's verse 22b. By all possible means. Listen carefully. But not any means at all. Or any means at all. You understand that? By all possible means. Huge difference. He might save some. So as long as their need didn't conflict or fiddle with the gospel or mess around with the moral law, Paul would say, fine. 
He's not going to break the commandments. He's not going to change the gospel. He just tosses every one of his liberties, every one of his personal convictions, every one of his personal bents and habits. They're they're free to be tossed. Why? To win as many people as possible. So here comes the legalist, right? And they hear that and they're saying, Paul, are you saying that there's no rules in Christianity? Are you saying that there's anything goes? And Paul's like, no, of course I'm not. Or on the opposite extreme, the antinomianist who says, you know what, we don't need God's moral law at all. In fact, the only law we need is love. However, we get to define love our way, not God's way, which is in the moral law. And so they were saying, anything goes once you're a Christian. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And Paul says, that is just muddle-headedness. Actually, that's what I said, but that's what he would say, maybe. Clearly, not anything goes. Verse 20b, I am not under the law as a system of salvation. Verse 21, but I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that what we've learned over and over again, the moral law teaches Paul how to love. It teaches Paul why he needs a savior because he can't keep it the way it should be kept. So the law of God is a needed dirt revealing mirror to show how amazing grace is. So then look at verse 20 at the beginning. I'm going to step into the Jewish world, become as one under the law. I'll put on some ceremonial customs the right way. I adhere to them to win the Jewish people. Verse 22b, by all possible means, then, does not mean by any means at all, right? Because any means necessary, if you would, is that's too much in our day, right? That's too much. Paul would not say you need to become like the world to win the world. No, we don't. No, we don't. Now, here it is. I I lost this in the first service. I found it in the second, finally. So on April 30th, there was a lovely young lady who wrote an op-ed piece for the Washington Post, and she was talking about millennialists, that young group of people, and the title, Want Millennials Back in Pews? Stop Trying to Make Church Cool. Right? Young lady. Rachel Evans is her name. And, And she says this. Young people don't simply want a better show, and trying to be cool might be making things worse. And then she quotes a lady named Amy Peterson. I want a service that is not sensational, flashy, or particularly relevant. I can be entertained anywhere. At church, I do not want to be entertained. I do not want to be the target of anyone's marketing. Listen to what she says. Great line. I want to be asked to participate in the life of an ancient future community. Isn't that great? Be part of an ancient but future community. And then there's this young man named Ben Irvin that she quotes, when a church tells me how I should feel, clap your hands if you're excited for Jesus, it smacks of inauthenticity. And then she backs up some of her thoughts with a whole lot of data of why millennials aren't part of a local church anymore. So we don't need to play dress up, do we? To win people to Jesus? I mean, you don't really want to see me and skinny jeans, do you? I don't want to see me in skinny jeans. In fact, <laughs> it's hard enough seeing me in the morning, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> if you follow that line of la- uh, logic, I've got to be dressed young to get to the young, then, then, okay, then what about the older people? So do I need to start wearing a Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian print shirt to win my senior citizen friends? Is that, do I have to play that game? Do I have to play dress up to win people? Do you find that in the gospel? Do you find Jesus having wardrobe changes? Just once, right? What was happening? Well, they were stripping him of his clothes so he could die naked on a cross. 
We need to be better at these things. We need to think harder. We need the church. People need church services. They need to be part of a body. They need to be part of the in and out of the part. Church life can be difficult. Okay, yeah, but man, it can be so wonderful as well. And God has chosen the church to be the chief way that he works in people's lives. So you see Paul's example to win souls is that everything about his racial identity, gone. Any religious sensitivity, he loses. He subjects himself, his conscience, to that of others. He never dismantles the gospel. He never dismantles the moral law so that he might win some. Right? So we have to ask ourselves questions. I had to ask myself questions this, this week. There weren't easy questions. Are we able to make wholesale changes about the way of life for the sake of the gospel that we have? We might have grown to love this way of life. We may have grown to to depend on this way of life, but we see no fruit in that way of life. Can you change it for the sake of the gospel? So you've longed for a certain day to come and it's arrived and you said, okay, I can just pull it back a few. Would you be willing to change that for the sake of the gospel? Okay, you have your little group and they're a wonderful group of people, but now it's become a subculture and it's hard for people to get in. They don't know your rules, and you won't change your rules. Are you willing to shut that down for the sake of the gospel? Some of you have strong personal convictions. You take issue with things. Fine. Will you set those things aside for the sake of the gospel to win as many people as possible? And you see, what Paul does is he wants the opportunity to put himself in that framework. And in order for that to happen, he's going to lose a lot of things about himself. If personal change is needed, says Paul, then personal change will come for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to have to make our own application, right? And these things, I can't make that application for you. But I can tell you, to have the heart of Jesus, what does Jesus do? He leaves He leaves the culture of heaven, if you would, and he becomes man. He takes on flesh, and he lives among our culture, and he steps into our world so that we could be saved from sin. So who's going to go to the generation experts? Who's going to go to them? Who's going to become like them? Who's going to become like the rich to win the rich? Who's going to become like the poor, the up-and-comers, the down-and-outers? Who's going to become like them? And I speak to myself first here. Who's going to become like them to win them. Who is willing to make wholesale, individual changes for the sake of the gospel? See, that's the big question. One last thing before we go to the final point. I was thinking, okay, what if Paul had a Facebook or an Instagram? I want to stay with me just for a minute. So he, he posts on his Facebook or Instagram. He says, well, first there's a picture of him and Timothy, right? And they're palling around like people do. Or maybe they're doing one of those things. Who knows? All right. And then the little comment on the bottom. Hey, peeps, about to go to the rabbi for Timothy's circumcision. Wish us luck. And then, let's say a few weeks later, he sends another pic and another comment that says, Hey, peeps, ain't no way my bro Titus is going to be circumcised. And so let's people are, say people are following Paul. And they're like, you big hypocrite. You got one picture here of a circumcision and another picture of no circumcision. What are you doing? You know, you're a fake. You're a man pleaser. What are you doing? Listen. If they don't know the details of Paul and Titus and Timothy's circumstance, Paul might look like a hypocrite. So do you see why it's really, really important that you have a sensible, Christ-centered understanding of your Bible? Do you see why it's so important that you know the right use of the moral law, that you understand redemptive history, 
to know, to know old New Covenant differences and to know that the God of the Old Testament is exactly like the God of the New Testament. Do you see why that's important? Paul, what are you doing? I'm seeking to win as many people as possible to Christ. Okay, how are you doing this? Well, I'm moving from me to them. I start where they are. I lay down, delete, subtract, whatever, non-essentials, even as I'm steadfast in gospel truth. I'm not changing the message. I'm not changing the moral law, but I am changing me. I am changing me when necessary to win some. Because, loved ones, the only cultural divide there should be between us and the world is the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus never asked the pagan to cross that divide. He asked us to go to them to get to them. Finally, Paul, why are you doing this? And this is so plain, verse 23. It's the heartbeat of the talk. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. Do you see it there? I want the reality of the good news reaching as many people as possible. I want to see biblical Christians in my context. I want Christ to be really enjoyed and really known and really adored and really worshipped. I want to share in that blessing. That's why I'm doing this. Okay, our time is done. What does it mean to share in its blessing? This is it. You ready? It's so simple. You want people to be part of the family of God. You look at the outsider and you want them to be part of the family of God. You want them to love and know Jesus. You want them to be saved by grace. You want them not to be part of the wrath to come. See, what does it come down to? It just comes down to good old-fashioned love. I love you more than me. And because I love you more than me, I'm going to do everything I can to see you in the kingdom. Right? Don't you love Jesus Christ? I know you do. Those of you that I know know, I know you do. Don't you love the gospel? Those of you that I know know, I know you do. So let's just play a little game and then we'll be done. Let's say you don't love Jesus. And let's say you don't love the gospel. Okay? Then this is what I would say. I would say that the world that you have is the world that you deserve. Listen to John Stott and we'll be done. Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standard with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize the world's violence, dishonest immorality, disregard for human life and its materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there's no sense in blaming the house. This is what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where's the light? Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there's no sense in blaming the meat. That is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question is, where's the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes dark night or stinky meat, there is no sense in blaming society That is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human sin and selfishness is left unchecked. The question to ask is, where's the church? Why are salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing society? It's sheer hypocrisy on our own part to raise eyebrows, shrug our shoulders, or wring our hands when the Lord Jesus Christ told us to be the world's salt and to be the world's light. If darkness and spoilness abounds, it's largely our fault, and we must accept 
the blame. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow and pray. Well, Father, we give glory to your name and we thank you for the riches and kindness of the gospel. We sang it, we said it in many different ways this morning. And we thank you, God, that you want to help us, those of us that need it. And I begin with myself. So I begin where I end in prayer. Father, make us pliable to these things. Take away our fight or our flight or our fear in these things. May the Holy Spirit, please, radically stir the believers before you now and newfound powers and newfound convictions in personal evangelism. May your zeal in these things be our zeal in order to help others know your Son for your glory, to be saved from the wrath to come, and that we might enjoy the gospel with them. New family members, arm in arm, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen.